The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the fifteenth um, of September, twenty twenty, and um, for the Tasha today, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the End of Life Choice Act, which we're going to have a chance to vote on in the referendum in a few weeks from now, on the seventeenth of October. Um, somebody suggested to me that I talk about this and the, uh, also about the cannabis legislation and control bill, um, which will also be uh, giving a ch given a chance to, to vote on. And it just so happens that these two um, topics for these referenda um, line up quite closely with two of our cardinal precepts. Um, not to kill, but to cherish your life for the for the life uh, end of life choice act. And uh, number five, not to cause others to take intoxicants, not to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. So um, I thought, yeah, I could give could give a tasho on on those. And I started and realised that they're they're very complex, and I need at least one tasho per per um, referendum item. So today we're going to look at the end of in the Life Choice Act, and I'll see if I can pull something together for the cannabis legislation, which is, is quite complex at another time. Um, but it did seem like a good opportunity with this one to, to explore the whole question of, of um, euthanasia and assisted suicide and, um, and to just look into it from some different angles. Um, I want to start um, by reading a little bit from um, a, a book by Mathieu Ricard. He's this great um, French Vajrayana monk um, of fine writer, writer very much in the French style of very um, fine intellect um, looking into ethical matters. And um, I read his book recently called A Plea for Animal, the Animals, which is about... Um, how we humans uh, treat animals. But in one uh, sort of uh, short chapter within this book, he talks about different types of ethics, and they can perhaps help us to um, navigate how we might look at the, the, some of the issues that this, this um, um, act gives rise to. And um, so I'm just going to we'll talk a little bit about these, these three types of ethics um, and hopefully they will they will sort of shine a bit of a light on um, how we might approach ethics around euthanasia. And these three are uh, deontological, consequentialist, and virtue-based. These are the three different types. And Yukar um, emphasizes that that um, Buddhist approach to the ethics to ethics is, is to do with this third one, a virtue base, which we'll look into in a moment. But actually, um, when you look at how Buddhist ethics kind of play out, you find all three of these. Um, and sometimes, it, sometimes it'll be a mixture of, of uh, one or two or even three of them in the way that we, we approach ethical questions. So just a quick look at these three. So deontological. Um, 
this dion comes from the Greek for duty. So it's the notion in ethics of duty or obligation. And um, it often also means you, you try and summon all your reasons for a certain um, rule and then you make your rules from, from those reasons, from those uh, their reasoning, you could say. And one of the things that comes out of this system um, is that um, certain acts shouldn't be committed under any circumstances, no matter the consequences. Um, and Ricard relates this to Immanuel Kant's philosophy and especially his idea of the categorical imperative. And it's interesting because Kant said he would rather lie, um, uh, that he would rather never lie, even if it meant protecting somebody from harm. So say somebody runs by you and then somebody with a gun comes on runs by and says, which way did she go? And you say, oh, that way. That he would be prepared to do that because he felt that to lie was to damage the kind of foundations of society. It was a, a crime against society. So that's quite, a, quite an extreme standpoint to make. Um, but you do find it sometimes in Buddhism. One of the people who was um, uh, on the staff at the, at the Rochester Zen Center when we were there, um, Mitra Bishop, she's the Roshi Mitra Bishop now, she was in, her husband was involved in a diplomatic corps and she traveled all over different places and at one point she was living in Burma and um, there was a rabid dog going around biting people um, but nobody wanted to kill the dog because that would be to um, uh, break the precept of not to kill. Um, and so that'd be an example of treating that precept of not to kill as a categorical imperative. The second um, type of ethics is consequentialist ethics. So the, this, in this one, the act is justified or not according to its results. And he connects this one especially to the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. So this one is sometimes characterized as being to do with the well-being of the greatest number, the greatest good for the greatest number it's sometimes referred to as. And there are elements of this within Mahayana Buddhism. But Ricard points out that this, this can lead to kind of deviant, things, excesses of different kinds, if you, if you take it too literally. For instance, he gives the example, well, is then it okay to enslave 10 people, if, or 100 people, say, if 1,000 people lead happier lives because they have a, a slave to do all their, all their uh, hard work. So it, you can go too far with the, this consequentialist or greatest good for the greatest number and it can become um, pretty inhumane. And so he says with this one you need other factors to be brought in as well. Justice, wisdom, compassion, and so forth. And that leads to the third type, or the virtue-based ethics. And he relates, um, Ricard relates this to, to um, Buddhism and to some of ancient, ancient Greek philosophers.
I'll just read a little bit about what he says about this ethics of virtue. It is based on a way of being that, confronted by different situations, spontaneously expresses itself either through altruistic or egoistic acts. As the neuroscientist and philosopher Francisco Varela wrote, a truly virtuous person does not act out of ethics, but embodies it like any expert embodies his knowledge. The wise man is ethical, or more explicitly, his actions arise from inclinations that his disposition produces in response to specific situations. So it's pointing to um, you could say um, cultivating our minds to the point where an ethical response just comes out of the heart. It's not some kind of should and it's not some kind of calculation about results, but comes out of our, our um, inherently loving and responsive mind. Um, inc rise from inclinations that his disposition produces in response to specific situations. And the teaching of Buddhism, going all the way back to the Buddha, puts an emphasis on, on what is our motivation, what is, the, what is the intention behind the act. And this goes both ways in the sense that um, we act from a place of intention, depending on the, the quality of our mind, um, but also in acting in a certain way, we reinforce that quality of mind. And so this is very important in, in Buddhist ethics, is not just um, not harming others, which is also important, but what is a, what is a particular um, action how does it affect our mind stream? What, 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 what does it leave? What does it cultivate in our minds or destroy in our minds? And so this is one of the things we can, we can look at as we, go, as we go through looking at this, this euthanasia issue. He also says a purely abstract ethics that is not based on a manner of being and does not take into account the specific aspects of circumstances is of no use. In real life, we always work within a particular context that requires an appropriate reaction. According to Varela, the quality of our availability will depend on the quality of our being and not on the correctness of our abstract moral principles. And, and we could apply this statement to this talk itself. You know, it's all very well talking about the stuff and talking about the theories, but it all comes down to what happens in a particular situation, in a particular set of circumstances. And that's why we can't be absolutely airtight about what, what could be right or wrong in any given situation because um, it, it has to come out of the circumstances. And I don't think any of us can know how we would respond if we were in a situation at the end of our life and suffering a great deal or having a family member pleading to be helped to die. Um, we wouldn't know until we were in that extremity what, how we might respond. It doesn't mean we can't decide how to, how to vote on this, but we don't uh, come at it from a, um, because of this very thing about um, it coming out of a particular set of circumstances. We wouldn't, wouldn't be able to absolutely um, 
kind of make a ruling on, on a, any situation that we just, just read about or talk about. He goes on, um, We may remark along with the Canadian Charles Taylor that a good part of contemporary moral philosophy has tended to focus on what is right to do rather than what is good to be, on defining the content of obligation rather than the nature of the good life. Defining the content of obligation rather than the nature of a good life. I think this one especially applies to the subject of euthanasia because we it's not just looking at whether it's right or wrong for somebody to decide to end their life early, but the nature of the good life, what, what effects allowing that may have on, on society. And we'll go into this more. Ethics must be concrete, embodied, and integrated into experience as we live it. It must reflect the unique character of each being and each situation. In our time, the movement toward concern and care for others has recently been on the, been on the rise from, and provides us with examples of the ethics of virtue. He's talking here, I think, particularly about um, care for others relating to care for animals. According to Buddhism, ethics is a part of the general project of seeking to relieve all forms of suffering. And this, this is often put forward as the, as the kind of core of all the, all the, um, the ten cardinal precepts, which is ahimsa, or, or non-harm. The general project is seeking to relieve all forms of suffering. This process requires us to renounce whatever kinds of egoistic satisfaction that come at the expense of the suffering of others, and to make every effort to bring about the happiness of others. To fulfill its ethical contract, altruism must, from this point of view, free itself from blindness and illuminate itself with a wisdom that is free of malevolence. It must enrich itself with altruistic love and compassion. So he presents these two sides. Um, to, to really be able to respond and to bring about the happiness of others, there has to be these two sides, the, 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 the love and compassion of our hearts, but also um, a wisdom and insight into, into how things unfold, the nature of the, of the world. So um, to have, bring both of these to um, ethical decisions. So what we'll be um, given a chance to vote on um, is the is, um, End of Life's Choice Act, which I understand will um, actually come into law um, sometime after, if, if we get more than 50% of, of uh, the votes coming in for it. Unlike the um, cannabis bill, which is less, less binding, um, the, the government at the time will, will um, create um, the laws, but it doesn't have to absolutely follow what's in the, 
products in the cannabis bowl. Uh, most people are probably pretty familiar with what um, of what the the um, um, end of life choice act is is saying. Uh, it's essentially it's voluntary euthanasia, and this word euthanasia is, comes from the Greek for a, a gentle and easy death. Um, just to quickly touch on the. Um, on the nature of this, the act. Basically, if you're if you're over 18 and you're a citizen or permanent resident of New Zealand, and you have a terminal illness that's likely to end your life within six months, and you have ongoing decline in physical capability, in other words, you're degenerating, health is degenerating, and that and you experience unbearable suffering that cannot be eased. It's a quote. Um, and you can make an informed decision about a sister dying, then you can avail yourself of this, of this law and ask to be um, assisted to die, to end your life early. One of the changes that happened since first, an earlier version came out was that this was narrowed down by, by this last statement that a person would not be eligible for a sister dying if the only reason they give is that they are suffering from a mental disorder or mental illness or have a disability of any kind or of, a, of advanced age. So just that on its own is not sufficient, any of those. Um, there's also some provisions that guard against, um, I guess are put in there to uh, protect people with dementia uh, you have to be able to understand the information you receive about a sister dying. You have to be able to remember that, weigh it up in order to make a decision and communicate in some way. Um, so you can, once you've, you've um, made your request of your doctor, then the doctor has to do their best to make sure that a person's choice to ask for assisted dying is their own. And this is one of the, one of the areas where many people feel there's, there's not enough safeguards. We'll come back to that. Two doctors have to agree that the person meets all the criteria and then um, it goes forward from there. If they don't, um, they're not sure, then they bring in a psychiatrist to assess the person. And um, then if the person is eligible, they choose a day, a method, and a date, and a time for taking the medication. And at the time, the doctor has to... Um, ask them if they still want to go ahead, or if they've changed their mind, and then they administer the lethal dose and stay with them until the person um, has died. So that's, that's, that's a bare bones description of, of the bill, the act rather. So um, 
how might this 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 having this choice affect things? Um, and who besides also who besides the um, individual involved uh, may be affected? We, we, in our culture, we often think of ourselves as being um, owners of our body, the owners of our lives, um, our individualism is very strong in our culture, but we don't have to look far to see um, cultures which see things very differently, which would see see us as belonging to um, family much more strongly, whānau, whakapapa, and all of these to be deeply affected by our, our decision. And not only friends and family, but um, the, the doctors and nurses and others involved in our care. And beyond that, um, Society, how uh, norms and attitudes towards um, each other might change in relation to um, euthanasia being able to be practiced. So now I'd like to just look at some of these these issues coming at it from by no means being exhaustive, but just uh, coming at, at the, taking up three topics that are circulating and if you look at some of the, the discussion that's been around, and there's been a lot of discussion, a huge number of um, uh, submissions were made when this bill was being considered. One is to, to um, look at the safeguards um, and then uh, concerns people have about about where this might take us going down the route of euthanasia and then some of the kind of unexamined assumptions um, that come along with um, the way the bill is formulated. One of the things that people are concerned about is that um, um, the person's family doesn't have to be involved in the process, that a doctor um, may not get permission to tell, the, to tell the family that the person wants to go through this process and they can only do so if, if they have permission from the person who's, who's um, asked for the... Uh, the um, assisted death, and yet the doctor is the one who's supposed to ascertain whether the pressure has been put on or not on the person, and yet they may not be even be able to speak, speak to the people who might gain the most from somebody dying.
another thing that's been mentioned is that um, many people may not be aware of what is already possible in terms of um, uh, how one can handle in a way that is is um, shaping one's death without having to recourse, recourse to actual um, assisted dying. Um, it's possible to um, make an advanced directive and, and people are really strongly encouraged to do this. I would encourage everybody here to do it if you haven't already, though I, I'm a bit hypocritical on that because I haven't actually done it myself. <laughs> but to think about, about what process you'd want to go through and, um, and discuss it with family members um, so that if you were dying, you would, they would know what you wanted. And, and, and among these, there's the, the chance to refuse treatment, to um, instruct not to be resuscitated uh, when you get to a certain point in your illness. Um, you can refuse treatments. You can um, you can ask not to be revived if you if you um, go into cardiac arrest. Um, you can decide not to eat food or or drink liquids. Um, and also, um, it's illegal to have medication to control severe pain, even if the medication hastens a person's death. Um, what, what is, is the difference there is that it's done to relieve, relieve pain, not to, to kill the person. Another concern that people have expressed is that this, the process can happen very quickly. Within a short number of a day, days, somebody could go from having learnt that they were about to die to, to um, going through this process. Um, just, it could be as short as four days. And in some jurisdictions, it's much more like nine or 20, uh, or between nine and 20. Um, and um, another one which which is, is a big question, is um, how, how subjective the whole issue of how long one has to live might be. And this is not something that doctors can always accurately predict. And um, there can be misdiagnosis, there can be wrong prognosis. And um, people can sometimes live long beyond the predictions that are made about them. Um, and another, another concern is the... Um, undermining of the doctor-patient relationship, the sense of trust between the doctor and the patient. If the patient has a sense that the doctor can um, be uh, the one who would, would um, administer a, a lethal dose in a certain situation. So those are, those are just touching on a few of them. I'm going to get down to more kind of fundamental issues. Um, uh, 
This is an article by Carmen Chan that somebody put me onto today. Um, uh, Carmen Chan is a, um, a a doctor working in at the moment in countries frontline emergency services, and is is um, also a, a regular writer about health issues. And um, she starts off by saying that when she was a medical student, she probably would have supported the End of Life Choice Act. Um, but what she's come to see as she's spent more time um, dealing directly with people is that um, conversation is much more complex and nuanced than she had thought. And, um, and how and how it appears in the media. And she gives an example of two sort of um, case studies that, that um, bring out um, some of the issues around um, assisted suicide, voluntary euthanasia. Who are, are we most benefiting with this legislation? We need our minds and our hearts open. Euthanasia is an irreversible procedure. I've seen this happen. Reginald is di diagnosed with end-stage lung cancer in Auckland. He is rapidly linked with an oncologist referred to palliative care doctors and they help him to arrange his plans. They offer counselling, arrange family meetings, help him sort out his affairs and arrange for him to have a hospital in the home bed and oxygen kit. When he reaches his final days, there's a clear advanced care plan organised with Reginald for when, he, for when to withdraw active treatment. Medicine is used to, only to ease his discomfort and pain. A palliative care team or his GP visit him regularly at hospice or at home to make sure that his needs are met. Um, palliative care, probably everybody knows, but this is the, the practice of, of just caring for a person's symptoms and when one no longer is actively trying to cure somebody but just um, uh, helping them to live the best possible life they can at the time they have left. This is... Um, if during that process where his breathing makes home too hard to manage, he can choose to be admitted to hospice to be cared for by nurses for respite so that his family can rest. He needs and comfort, his needs and comfort are the priority until the day he dies. This is palliative care. Now let's look at the other situation. Taylor lives out rurally. It takes four weeks to even get a GP appointment. When she does see someone, it's a different doctor every time. She waits for months on the public wait list. Eventually she gets diagnosed with metastatic cervical cancer. She has to transfer to, the, to a big town for surgery and radiation treatment and then go back for chemotherapy to her local hospital. She only sees the oncologist when he travels monthly for rural clinics and is prescribed a lot of pain relief to take home if she's sore. The cancer gains ground despite treatment and she is offered palliative care. There are not as many services available out here as in a much, as much as a large city and she doesn't want her family to have the huge stress of her dying while they're already, already struggling 
trying to earn enough to feed the family. Hospice is full and too far away. The local hospital is tiny and always short of beds. She doesn't really want to die there either. She opts for euthanasia. First and foremost, euthanasia is an equity problem. It broadens the gap in health outcomes for those who already have trouble getting fair access to care. For example, Māori and Pacific populations, rural communities, those impoverished and anyone already marginalised by the healthcare system. For me, it's obvious who would be more likely to opt to end their lives early through euthanasia because they cannot access the medical care and support they need. We need to think very carefully about what this legislation might end up doing. Um, even the, even the, the, the calculation of, of how long one has to live uh, can be very skewed by um, inequalities in our system and the assumptions that are made. Um, the, um, the wonderful podcast series uh, being aired on national radio by Emma Espina, and it's a year in her life as a, as a last year of medical as a medical student. And um, she tells um, uh, a story of the Wallace family in Porirua, who's the, the husband and the father, Colin, had a stroke. And um, he, when he goes to A&E um, for treatment, he's told that he has a terminal um, condition, that he's got brain swelling, and essentially that he has 24 hours to live. And... Um, then they realise that they've assumed, because he's, he's Maori, a tattooed man, um, dark-skinned, they assume that he drinks and smokes and is, is unfit, when in fact he's none of these. He's been physically up to, active up to the point of a stroke um, and um, yet they, they, the people in the A&E assume these things about him. And it's only under pressure from his wife um, to keeps keeps um, advocating for him that um, eventually they the the truth about this guy sinks in and they change the prognosis and offer him treatments and he lives and lives um, not just survives um, but but goes on to be rehabilitated from his stroke. Um, and, and this is just one personal story of, of um, uh, many, many, many um, time uh, experiences of Maori in within our health system. Um, Maori less likely to receive prescriptions for the same illness. Uh, their cancers are diagnosed later. They get sick and die earlier. Um, so all of these things uh, factor into. Um, the effect that this this um, choosing may have, and all kinds of pressures on people when when one is one is sick um, and vulnerable and um, and and not wanting to be a burden. This is this is a really big one. Not wanting to be a burden on. Um, on one's family in different ways, whether it's economically or 
just the care and the, um, the, the, the pressure on the family to care for somebody, the, the pain of, the, of them seeing their, their loved one suffer. Sometimes people people will talk about about um, the, the the danger of a slippery slope with this um, legalising of euthanasia. Um, will there be a cultural shift towards a weakening of, of respect for life? Will we see some lives as being more important than others? Will people feel that they have to justify their treatment if 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 there's this this um, possibility is there? Will the old and infirm and the physically incapable be valued less than than the, the able-bodied and productive people? Um, will less money and effort be put into the care of um, the very ill and the terminally ill? Um, the hospice movement which is, is considered to be, New Zealand I think is considered to be the third or fourth um, most uh, prominent uh, hospice countries in terms of the hospice movement being active here. Their whole ethos is to, is to, kind of to facilitate uh, life up to the very end and allow people to have um, a good life right up to the end. There are many um, submissions by different um, hospice, uh, hospices around the country um, that you can read online, and uh, one of them particularly struck me, and it was it's from uh, Hospice Southland, and it's by the CEO of of the of Hospice Southland, Andrew Lees. He writes. Those of us who work in hospice accompany people who are facing the huge challenge of consciously having to let go of life. Patients face letting go of all the people they love and of all that they value in their lives while having to cope with the immense changes for some gradual but for others over a very short span of time that occur in their ability to participate and contribute to life in the way they have always done. This means loss on all levels, both for themselves and for their families, who begin to grieve the moment they hear there is no cure for their loved one's illness. The patient and their family experience what is termed anticipatory grief. Grieving is the process of adjustment to a loss, and people respond in their own individual ways, depending on personality, past experiences, and personal beliefs and values. On occasion, patients may ask for euthanasia at some point in this grieving process. There may be a complexity of emotions, anger, frustration, guilt for being sick and not wanting to be a burden, fear and anxiety. How am I going to die? Will I die in pain? To name a few. They may voice such things as, can't you give me something to put out of my misery? You wouldn't put a dog through this. If I have to die, just let me die now. 
I can't put up with this suffering any longer. Sometimes it's the family rather than the patient who will ask for euthanasia, saying there's no dignity in this. The palliative care team's response is, give us a chance. We believe we can help you feel better than you do now. We'll give you the best care possible, physically, emotionally and spiritually. You don't have to go through this alone. We know that excellent palliative care gives people hope and we see patients building trust with their doctors, nurses and the wider multidisciplinary team all of whom are providing holistic support. What we often observe is that the nature of euthanasia is one that the desire for sorry, the desire for euthanasia is one phase of their journey of adjustment. All major life events take time to process and we often just want out. We may suffer deeply with the end of a marriage, worries about our children, ill health or loss of relationships of all kinds. We mostly find ways of adjusting to the changes these issues can bring. Whilst it can be argued these situations are very different to the prospect of losing one's life, the principle is the same. Human beings have an amazing ability to adjust to deep suffering if they receive support and kindness and if they have a time to access the necessary expertise. expertise. There is emotional suffering in the process of letting go of life and sometimes there's physical suffering because people have systems that are system, symptoms that are complex. But we see the vast majority of people move through the phase of wanting out. They do find a way through their dark night of the soul experience and most people are able to come to a place of shared kinship where they feel that life is worth living and they want to make the best of the opportunities that still present themselves. These same people may lose that opportunity because they are unable to see beyond their current situation at that moment in time and instead opt for euthanasia. He goes on to talk about how, how often in this period, and this is, this is my experience and limited experience of working with hospice patients, is that um, it can be a time of, of huge loss, but at the same time of healing. People often don't, don't think that you can heal if you're going to die. Surely that means you're, you're, you're sick. But there can be a healing that happens within the dying process. Forgiveness on both sides, uh, being an enormous one for people being able to die um, with a sense of peace. He says, ironically, despite being in the process of dying, many people say to us that although they would never have believed it at the beginning, this has been a precious time and given the choice of dying suddenly or dying under their circumstances, they would choose the latter again. They are glad they've had the chance to spend time with people they love, to say important things, share special experiences and perhaps reconnect with those who are important to them. They have taken the opportunities that present themselves as loss and have continued to deepen their experiences of life and of themselves. And this theme runs through many of the hospice submissions of, of um, seeing this dying process as an, a gift and as this important and, and, and extremely valuable part of life. 
um, that that really have there are deep riches within it if we can bear with it um, that we can find. Um, Yeah, and just a couple of more things about um, this emphasis on death being a natural part of life, and um, and to 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 find the 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 support and and uh, a help to give oneself over to this process. Um, it, It is a process which which takes courage to face. Um, just to to talk a little bit about hidden assumptions, I was struck by a statement um, in the information that's online about this bill, which was describing what assisted dying means. It said, assisted dying means a person's doctor or nurse practitioner gives them medication to relieve their suffering by bringing on death. Gives them the medication to relieve their suffering by bringing on death. Well, how can we know that, that breath relieves somebody's suffering? We don't know if this is so. Think of Hamlet, to be or not to be, that is the question. To this, this well, perhaps we could chance to dream, he says. We don't know what, what will come next. And uh, from a Buddhist point of view, human life is, is seen to be so very precious. It's said that in, in human life we have the right balance of suffering and awareness that allows us to awaken. What if, what if assisted suicide created more suffering? Um, we're we're um, taught in Buddhism that the state of mind at the point of death is seen to be very crucial in terms of what, what comes next. So to die with any with fear or anger or aversion in the mind um, can be uh, counterproductive. But there are no absolutes. Uh, the Dalai Lama was asked about about um, uh, euthanasia, and he said the key is intention. So if the intention is love and compassion, then the, a the action cannot be wrong. Pretty strong statement. But then he added, but it's a better to avoid it if possible. <laughs> and why? Because human life is very precious. Very precious. Um, there's a, a campaign online called the Vote Yes Campaign 
and it has some very moving accounts of people who have gone through cancer treatment um, or people who had had parents who were very ill and really wanted to die and that had to stick around for for much longer than they wanted to and um it goes into some pretty grisly detail about some of the things that one can suffer in the dying process. Um, basically, um, uh, you name it, it can fall apart. It can gr in, in grisly kinds of ways. A body can break down in, in all different sorts of ways, physically, mentally. Death, death is the unraveling of the five skandhas, the unraveling of the body and the mind. And it's painful for the person who is losing their body and mind and uh, for the family. Uh, Dr. Chan, that article we read from a book before, she says, she says, we're all terminal. We're all going to um, have to, at some point, give up this this body which which um, we so strongly identify with. And one of the themes in the in this um, um, Yes for Compassion site that comes again and again is is the, the the strong want to to die with with dignity. Um, to some to some extent Lack of dignity comes with the territory of having an embodied, being embodied. Um, it's, 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 it's part of, it comes with being alive to some degree. I mean, to, it's like, it's like we only have, as, as embodied beings, we only have a certain uh, degree of control over this process. Of being alive, we'll just finish up now, and um, if we've got time, we can we can have just a bit of discussion. Um, I'm going to finish with with a story, a koan. Um, that appears in the book um, that I was reading during my retreat last week. Uh, Minding the Earth, Mending the World. This is by Susan Murphy. And it's particularly about our response to climate change. And it's, um, it's got this subheading of Zen and the Art of Planetary Crisis. And at the end of the, of the book, she gives 13 stories that, or koans that people could take up that, that circle around the theme of, of planetary breakdown, climate uh, catastrophe and one of them struck me as being um, very applicable to this issue of of um, dying and what is what it's like to be what it's like to be alive and it's called it's entitled it is only for your benefit and um, it's, it's an exchange between Dongshan and a monk. And Dongshan is one of the two founders of the Tsao Dong or the Soto uh, Zen tradition. 
and she gives a little explanatory note before she, she presents the, the poem. Um, so, um, Dong Chan and, and a monk who he addresses as an Acharya. Acharya is an honorific title, like saying wise one. So he's addressing the wisest part of us and trusting its response when he speaks to the monk. It is a word in Zen that always needs caution. Don't lead to conclude that it refers simply to suffering. And it is valuable to know that what Zen calls the heart-mind is so wide it no longer finds it so easy to distinguish curse from blessings. So this is like a little pointer for us um, when we, we, we hear the koan itself, the story. And here's the story. Dongshan and a monk were down by a creek washing their bowls when two birds flew down and tore apart a frog sitting on a stone right in front of them. The monk asked, Why does it come to this? Dongshan replied, It is only for your benefit, Acharya. Wise one. And then she comments, Why does it come to this? There it is, the age-old anguish growing sharper every minute as we watch the world casually risk an unthinkable future. Why is the earth being torn apart by the ferocity of human greed, hatred and ignorance? Why must life always come to the moments of tearing and pain, accidents and grief, sickness and old age, death and loss? Why do we lose every single, every single thing we love while possibly failing to notice how generously we were given every single thing we love in the first place? And why must we give it all back, give back even ourselves? That monk by the old creek is staring at our world too. All this that we are threatened by is only for our benefit. What? Dungshan's it is only for your benefit, is remote from someone telling you no pain, no gain, or you can't expect to be relaxed and comfortable all the time, though they're right. What it occur, when it occurs in a Zen koan, it in inverted commas, always reach for your whole mind, which means undivided reality. It includes suffering, of course, it includes everything, but does so without picking and choosing, not singling out anything at all on which we could try to hang an accusation or a dream of saving ourselves from life, nature, reality. This benefit Dungshan extends is quite severe. Most great blessings are it asks that we rigorously give up any dream of the self as separate from the rest of life and exempt from an unavoidable suffering. But in reply, it gives us back the whole world, an inconceivable grace, able to include both suffering and joy, torn frogs and two at least half-satisfied birds without a hint of self-capity. All things are passing through the mysterious interchange from not being to being to not being. The universe itself shares this self-nature with us. That which we are 
we will not be. That which we have, we will lose. We eat now, but later we will be eaten. Prevail now, but later will yield. The way one thing insists on continually becoming another is beyond judgment. It is just the way things are in an ongoing creation event that for reasons undeclared brings all things into a being from nowhere and releases them back there again. There's not much more that can be said after that. <laughs> but if anybody wanted to bring up any questions or issues or comments. Peter. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question to ask, and I certainly found that coming up when I read the, these accounts of the suffering that people have been through. Um, but then I think you know you, there are these questions about what will have an effect on the wider society, and um, and you know and the, and the issue that you raise about becoming easier and easier, that that you if you vote for something that that looks fairly tight now but might not be 
later, and apparently in Belgium, it's got to the point where people can be euthanized without their consent, yeah, according to one of these articles that I was reading. I don't know. I couldn't verify that, so I don't know for sure. But yeah, what right do would you feel like? What right do you have to say to anybody you you can't do this? And I I don't know what would, I would if I was directly you know talking to somebody. I don't I don't know how I would um, respond. And and you know it would very much be what 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 was my was my attitude. Um, what, what, where would I be coming from in, in, in responding or not responding? To be able to ask the questions, not necessarily answer them. Did you have something else, Justine?
northern uh, northern eastern Europe. Uh, it was the social norm that the moment you became a burden, she went out into the snow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's actually you've sparked a memory of a film where there's an old grandmother who does exactly that. That I can't remember now what culture it was, but they were like nomadic, and she goes she goes out, and they don't want her to die, and so they pull her back. But then she breaks her teeth so she can't eat, and then goes out to die, and basically to die in the snow. And yeah, in that kind of situation where she would be pulling back the whole clan who were you know had to move from place to place. Um, and understanding that, but it's fierce. It's such. It's a fierce decision to make, you know. To 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 to. to um, but it, yeah, selfless in a sense because not. Um, but I guess I guess that's that society, <laughs> and we're we're we're. Um, we're at a different kind of different stage of. of evolution <laughs> or, or, or needs, different kinds of needs. Yeah, anybody else? Any thoughts? I also remember um, the story of one Zen master who, who um, stopped eating because he could no longer work and he said a day of no work is a day of no eating and then the monk, I'm pretty sure it's the same guy I think it's Yakucho Yaku they said to him look it's, it's the middle of winter if you die now it's going to be it's going to be really hard to dig your grave and all the monks are going to be really cold at your funeral and he said okay he started eating again <laughs> and then when it got around to summer he stopped and, and that's an option we always, already ha- always have you know we always have the option of not of, of stopping eating and drinking and sure fire away eventually of perishing. Yeah. If somebody wants to do it that, that that's you know, that's an option we have.
Okay, we'll uh, finish with the four vowels. And then um, we haven't been at, at this level of um, uh, infection control. We haven't been doing uh, pro the prostration. So at the end of the four vowels, we'll just um, um, do the accelerando and, and rise to standing. But then we'll just finish with a bow to the Buddha and a bow to each other. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passion. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org. Dot org dot NZ.